A reading from the book of Romans, beginning at chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So remain standing, I'll invite you to bow your heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us this day. And we'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known and glorified would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. This is one of the most beloved promises found in the Bible. If you were to walk into a Christian bookstore when such things existed, you could find this verse embossed on t-shirts and bookmarks. For we know 
that all things work together for good for those who love God. Really, Paul? All things? You see, it's interesting how this promise gets worked out. For in light of it, we're often invited to think, well, whatever it is that I might be facing, the loss, the diagnosis, the broken relationship, the failing mental, physical health, the accident, the tragedy, is somehow brought into my life or allowed by God for my good. Now, once there, people often give time over to trying to figure out how it is that God is going to bring good through those negative experiences. And as a pastor over the years, I've heard and created some of my own incredible narratives for how God is going to use these negative circumstances for my good. And if no satisfying narrative is found, well, then we'll chalk it up to mystery and think, well... At some point, I hope God reveals to me how that thing was for my good. At times, we apply the promise to others. You may have gone through something tragic. and have had someone come up to you in the midst of it and say, Don't worry, all things work together for good for those who love God. And it may be well-intentioned and meant to encourage But such a platitude only serves to dismiss the pain and feels like a verbal kick in the teeth when you're already down, right? Because not only are you going through that thing, but now you think your faith is being questioned in the midst of it. Others take this promise conditionally. God works all things for good if you love him. So if you love him, well then there'll never be any tragedy in your life. And we probably have as many examples to the contrary as we have people in this room. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Really, Paul? Do we know that? The problem with this beloved promise, readily turned platitude, is that it often gets torn out of its context and applied where and in ways it was never intended. Today we're wrapping up our series on Romans 5 through 8, reflecting on the dynamics of discipleship, the inner dynamics that drive our growth to maturity in Jesus, that drive us to live in step with new creation, to live in anticipation of the kingdom that God is bringing in Jesus. And this statement of Paul, this beloved promise, readily turned platitude, is actually far more glorious than we could possibly imagine. A promise that invites our participation to pick up our purpose in Jesus. But for that, we need to hear it in its context. You see, Paul has been speaking in Romans 8 about the work of the Spirit in the life of the follower of Jesus deepening our relationship with God as Father, as His beloved children, heirs of an eternal kingdom. Our destiny is to receive renewed bodies in a renewed cosmos shot through with the glory of the living God. And then in the middle of chapter 8, Paul turns our eyes forward to revel in the hope that God in Jesus is making everything new. And he invites the follower of Jesus in light of that hope to a particular posture. 
On the one hand, we have creation. Marred as it is by sin, injustice, death, pain, sorrow. On the other hand, we have the glory of God's coming kingdom shot through with God's life, love, presence, justice. And in the gap between what is and what will be, he invites us to groan, to wail, to lament, to lament that God's healing has not washed over the face of the earth, to lament that God's love has not broken through the hardness of the human heart, to lament that God's glorious rule has not put all things in their proper place. And Paul says the spirit within us will enable us, help us to give expression to this grieving, lamenting, groaning. In 2005, I attended a U2 concert at the ACC. It was part of their Vertigo tour. And they ended the evening by singing the song 40, which is essentially Psalm 40 put to music. It's a psalm of lament. And the refrain of the song is a line from Psalm 6 that says, How long will we sing this song? How long will we sing this song? And the concert ended with 25,000 people singing in unison, How long, how long, how long? Bono, U2's lead singer, later reflected on the song choice. I had thought of it, he said, as a nagging question pulling at the hem of God. How long will we sing this song? How long death? How long pain? How long disease? How long injustice? How long inequality? How long war? How long will we sing this song? But weaved through the song is another refrain, a refrain of hope, but... But I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. It's a line, I think, from Revelation, where the hosts of heaven are gathered to behold the culmination of God's kingdom. The heart of U2's song is what Paul has been inviting us into. To inhabit the gap between what is and what will be and grieve, lament, yearn for everything to be made new. And into that posture, Paul brings this promise. For we know all things work together for good. The good that God is bringing is not yours or my personal definition of good, but rather the promise coming goodness of new creation, the fullness of the kingdom that Jesus will bring upon his return. Wonderful. But Tim, the promise says good for those who love God, for the benefit of those who love God. How can we not make this promise personal? How can we not import our definition of goodness into it? Early on in the pandemic, Anglican scholar N.T. Wright wrote a little book entitled God and the Pandemic. And we studied it as part of our weekly staff meetings over Zoom. And Wright was reflecting on the narratives that were being bandied about. Here's the reason that God brought the pandemic. Or here is the reason that God allowed the pandemic. 
wanting us to see the good that was or would come out of it, somehow making it all worthwhile. And Wright was rather frustrated by it. And he said, essentially, this kind of thinking arises from a misunderstanding of this promise from Romans 8, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And he focused in on the word that gets translated, work together for the good. Now, this is the Greek word synergeo, from which we get the word synergy. And most times in the scriptures, it gets translated to work with, to work together, to cooperate with. Wright concludes then, then we should hear this verse as an affirmation that God is working with those who love him, with those who have the spirit within him, them, with those who are grieving, lamenting, yearning, in order to bring about new creation in us, through us. So Wright invites his readers to lay down the creative thinking about how God might be using this pandemic to bring about good and instead see the pandemic as one more example that the world is not as it should be. And that the follower of Jesus, the one filled with the Spirit, the one groaning, lamenting, grieving, is invited to point to that new creation in all we do and say and pray. God works all things for good with those who love him. It's a promise that invites us to pick up our purpose in Jesus. Now this reading, I think, helps us incredibly understand what follows. Because what follows can be incredibly confusing. Verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you know that this is often used as a proof text for the belief called predestination, that God chooses some for salvation and not others. And this is pitted against a belief that's often called Arminianism, that human beings are free to choose salvation or not. But to see this as a proof text for predestination is to take it out of its context. As one put it, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> Paul's intent here is to build our confidence our assurance in the promise that he's just articulated. New creation is coming in you and through you, in spite of you. Why? Because of where you are located. You are in Christ, meaning that his future is your future, his destiny, your destiny, his purpose, your purpose. Let me put it this way. Charles Price was once pastor of People's Church here in Toronto. And he tells a story once of trying to get from Seattle to England. And the first leg of the journey was a flight to New York City via Dallas with a quick changeover. So he takes the first leg of the flight, gets off at Dallas, looks at his boarding card. The next flight is at gate 22A. He rushes to the gate, joins the 22 line, boards the plane gets comfortable, the doors close, the plane pulls back from the gate. 
And then the captain comes onto the anchor com. Welcome aboard. Flight time to Oklahoma City, one hour and 55 minutes. He turned to the woman beside him. He said, I think the captain might be confused. He should have said, flight time to New York City. She said, I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to Oklahoma City. <laughs> but I'm going to New York City, he responded. Not on this plane, he ain't. He put the call light on. The flight attendant came. He notified her of the problem. Nothing I can do, she said. The flight to New York City is already taxiing down the runway. I'm afraid you're going to have to go to Oklahoma City and sort things out from there. But I don't want to go to Oklahoma City. I'm sorry, she said, but you are on a plane that is going to Oklahoma City. What she could have said was this plane is predestined to go to Oklahoma City. What is true of this plane is also true of you. Where this plane is going, you go as well. To be chosen, to be predestined, is to say that if you are in Christ, certain things are now true of you. His destiny, your destiny. His future, your future. His purpose, your purpose. That is the point of these verses to give us assurance of this glorious promise that Paul has just given us. And so confident is Paul in this promise that he speaks of it in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Are you glorified? Am I glorified? Is our world glorified? Are you and I and our world shot through with the glory, beauty, justice, goodness of the living God? Of course not, right? Yet Paul is so confident of this future that he speaks of it in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This pursuit of assurance continues as chapter 8 closes with five questions that are meant to build our confidence in this promise. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said, Jesus Christ was up on the cross. Nailed, bleeding, dying. Looking down at people betraying, denying, forsaking. And the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. He stayed. He stayed for you. He stayed for me. Look at that, says Paul. Look at what he did for us when we were at enmity with him. Let that be your assurance that now that you're his beloved child adopted by grace, how will he not graciously give us all things? Let that be your assurance that he will bring salvation to completion in new creation. Paul's next two questions continue to pursue assurance. They're questions related to internal matters, matters of guilt and condemnation. I almost see behind them an objection. Okay, Paul, you're telling me that, that God is bringing about new creation in me. 
that I'm predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, but I'm not seeing that in me. I'm not seeing that change, that that transformation. I'm feeling condemned. Guilt is weighing upon me. Paul could have responded, borrowing some of the truths from Jesus' kingdom parables. Well, like a seed, kingdom growth starts small. There are seasons where it doesn't appear like much is happening. It takes time. But it'll come. Take the long view. Are you more patient than you were a year ago? More joyful, loving, content, less angry and bitter? Well, well, take heart. New creation is taking form in you. And while those things are true, Paul says no such thing. He doesn't at all want us to take our feelings of guilt and condemnation to ourselves. We so often try in vain to silence those inner voices with self-justification, right? Well, I may have done that thing, but I'm better than so-and-so. Or I did this to make up for it. Or I had very legitimate reasons for doing that thing. No, no. Paul does not want us to look at ourselves for assurance. Paul invites us to take such concerns to Jesus. Take heart, he says. In Jesus, you're justified. You are declared right before him. You are in Christ, meaning that when God looks at you, he sees the beauty and perfection of his son. Don't for a moment wallow in condemnation. Jesus took all of your sins to the cross, past, present, future, and rose again declaring new life and forgiveness. And even now stands before the Father pleading your case, declaring his love and forgiveness, interceding on your behalf that new creation would take shape in you. When guilt and condemnation come, take it nowhere else but Jesus. Take it nowhere else but Jesus. Paul now moves from reflecting on internal matters to a final question reflecting on external ones. Again, I hear behind it an objection. Paul, you want me to have assurance that God is bringing new creation? I don't see it. Everywhere I look, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. I think we could add our own, right? How can we be assured that God is bringing new creation? I look around me and I see political upheaval, financial crisis, a despot in Putin waging war, pandemic disease, climate catastrophe. How does Paul respond to such an objection? Well, first he seems to say, if if you're thinking that way, You're not alone. Such thinking has been a part of the language of faith for millennia. In verse 36, he quotes from Psalm 44. And when the New Testament writers quote from the Old, they're not proof texting. They're saying a verse to say, I want to remind you of Psalm 44. I want you to go back and read it. When you go back and read Psalm 44, you hear a people in agony, in pain, in sorrow. They remember times where God was at work, but now they don't see it. And they wonder, is God forsaking us? Has God rejected us? Are we alone in this? I think Paul is pointing to that psalm and saying, if you look around you and you don't see evidence of new creation, you're not alone. The feelings, the the thinking you're having right now is not foreign to the life of faith, but is rather consistent with it. 
But there's a problem, right? Because we often look to such things, the circumstances of our lives and our world, as evidence of God's love, right? If things are going well, consistent with our definition of goodness, well, then God must love me. If not, well, no, no, says Paul. Your circumstances should never be turned to to determine God's love for you. The only place you should look is Jesus. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the face of circumstantial evidence that suggests that God is not at work, that God does not love us, the most profitable thing we can do is reflect on his love. Reflect on the reality that he placed his love on you before the foundation of the world. He knows you right the way to the bottom. He knows you better than you know yourself even the things you wouldn't want anyone else to know, and loved you to the end. Loved you to the point of laying down everything for you. Went into hell for you. Was separated from the Father's love for you. And thought it all worth his while. Out of this text comes our final dynamic of discipleship four core convictions that form in us a way of being and living in the world that is wholly other, wholly transformative, wholly glorious. The four convictions. First, we're called in light of the gap between what is and what will be to grieve, lament, yearn. Two, we're to be assured, have hope, utter certainty that Jesus is coming to make everything new. Three, we're to be assured that we're loved by God in Jesus beyond imagining. And four, we're to pick up our purpose as ambassadors, agents, citizens of new creation, with whom, through whom, in whom, God is at work in the world. And I almost see these four convictions as four pillars holding up a roof or another story. If only one pillar is missing or faulty, the entire structure falls. And when you look out on the church in the West, do we see these four pillars together, equal, strong? I know this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think if we look at left-leaning churches... We find that they have absolutely picked up their purpose to be a kingdom people. You can find in them grieving, lamenting what is and what should be. But there's often an erosion of trust in the great love of God displayed for us in an atoning death upon a cross. An erosion of trust in a bodily resurrection. An erosion of trust that Jesus is coming again to make everything new. I think if you were to look at right-leaning churches, you would find this solid conviction in the atoning work of God upon the cross, his love displayed, a bodily resurrection, his return again to make everything new. 
but to pick up our purpose as ambassadors, citizens, agents of new creation? Well, isn't Jesus coming again to destroy everything and start all over again? I wouldn't put money into that car that was destined for the wreckers. Why would I put time, energy, and effort into a world that is going to be no more? The right-leaning church is often apathetic to the injustice, poverty, and pain that runs rampant in our world. They're lamenting the gap between what is and what will be is often personal. I grieve that my life does not match up to God's. At little t, we have both left-leaning and right-leaning and everything in between. And Paul is inviting us individually and as a community to hold on to these pillars with equal conviction and passion. So where do we need to lean into as a church? Where do we need to learn from one another in our left-leaning and right-leaning tendencies? Where do you personally need to lean in? so that all of these pillars come into equilibrium, into balance, that we might enter more into this spirit-guided dynamic of discipleship. God works all things for good with those who love him. So let us receive this promise not as a platitude, but as a calling, a calling to pick up our purpose in Jesus to grieve and lament the gap between what is and what will be, with an assurance that indeed Jesus is coming to make everything new. And in the face of evidence to the contrary, let us rest in his glorious love for us displayed on the cross in Jesus, that we would be a people in whom, with whom, through whom, God is at work in the world making everything new. To Jesus' glory alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.